We are uh, continuing in our annual vision series this morning and uh, concluding that series. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 12, chapter 1, and we'll pick up there in a moment. By way of reminder, every fall since we planted the church uh, six years ago, we've done an annual vision series in which we unpack the vision and values of the church and sort of recalibrate for the year ahead. September 1st is sort of the first day of our church calendar, uh, and we cast vision. So uh, the vision statement that we've been unpacking that we are working with this year, it's actually new this year, uh, but this is what it says. It says, we are a genuine expression of the family of God, faithful to scripture, centered on the gospel, and committed to making resilient disciples. We value life in the spirit in which the church becomes a participatory body, passionately seeking the kingdom of God in prayer and worship as God empowers us for his global mission in neighborhoods and nations. And if you've been tracking with us over the last four or five weeks, you know that this vision statement can be broken down into eight values, and we have covered all of those values in some capacity except for one, which we'll conclude with today, and that is the value of making resilient disciples. Uh, First, we pick up in Romans 12, verse 1. This is what it says. It says, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for today. We thank you for this place. Uh, We don't take it for granted, Lord. And we pray that as we gather in this place, that you would not only continue the process of, uh, in the words of Romans 12, transforming our minds, uh, forming us into the image of Christ, but I pray this morning that you would uh, give, uh, give us a fresh vision for what that looks like in our day and age. Uh, that we would be people who live honest, open lives before you, who are not deformed by the patterns of this world, but are transformed by the renewing of our minds. Would you come and speak to us now? And ultimately, Lord, would you set us free? You say that you've come to set the captive free and to bring us into a new space where we look increasingly like you. That's what freedom looks like. So would you come, Holy Spirit, and continue the process of making us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Over the millennia, human beings have had a fascinating relationship with technology. On the one hand, God placed creation under our care and told us to take it somewhere to form and shape and cultivate and to take the raw potential of planet Earth and form it slowly into a garden-like city. 
And presumably, uh, from the beginning, that was always going to involve some forms of technology. Plows and pruning hooks, pens and papyrus, needle and thread, brushes and canvas, threshing floors and wineries, rock chisels and pickaxes. But over the last hundred years, which is a blip on the map of human history, uh, technology has shifted, or I should say our relationship to technology has shifted in some significant ways. I would argue that technology is no longer simply an aid in basic human activities. It has grown and morphed into something else. Uh, historically, technology was controlled by humanity and acted as an aid in human culture. But more recently, technology has grown into something that undermines and displaces human culture, controlling humanity in the process. Or said another way, technology no longer aids culture, it has become the culture. And the modern person now tends to view technology as both a source of salvation and a potential threat. We now approach technology uh, oscillating between ecstasy and anxiety. On the one hand, there is ecstasy or excitement. Uh, technology is almost worshipped as the solution to all of our problems. From cancer to climate change, from starvation to genetic disease, from loneliness to laziness, from stupidity to boredom, whatever it is, if humanity has a problem, then surely science and technology will be the solution. Uh, never mind the fact that technology may have caused that problem in the first place. We just need a new technology to solve the new problem caused by our last breakthrough in technology. So within that mentality, you sort of get stuck in this endless cycle of coming up with new and better technology to solve the problems that, was that were caused by our last round of technological breakthroughs. And it becomes a bit of an endless cycle. But in the end, the thinking goes, technology will save us. So you've got excitement or ecstasy on the one hand about the newest gadget, the newest breakthrough, the newest technological solution. But on the other hand, the modern person carries a deep ambivalence about technology and the role that it plays in our lives. It is not purely good. We are also weary of it. Whether it's AI or the iPhone in my pocket, or a robot taking my job. Not my job, but maybe <laughs> your job. Uh, I'm thinking of all the times my kids have asked Siri questions about God, and Siri's like, I don't know. I cannot tell you that. Yes, I still have a job. Uh, but your job might be at stake. Uh, so whether it's a robot taking our job, the technology in our pocket, uh, the nuclear technology in the hands of people who don't like us, uh, government surveillance 
on a scale that we never dreamed was possible even a few years ago. Uh, the ability to uh, pollute and strip the natural world much faster than it can replenish itself, uh, algorithms that can basically read my mind. Uh, we, we have mixed feelings about technology and the role it plays in our lives. And I would argue that this deep ambivalence that we carry has been captured almost prophetically in Hollywood movies over the last 30 or 40 years thinking all the way back to the early 80s with Terminator and its sequels, uh, The Book of Eli, uh, The Road, The Day After Tomorrow, I Am Legend, Will Smith, anybody? Quarantine, Contagion, Rise of the Planet of the Apes, Revolution, Westworld, Waterworld? H Plus, the digital series, and my personal favorite, the original Matrix movie. Just to name a few. Um, all of them express these themes of technology being really good, humans celebrating technological breakthrough, but then technology gets beyond our control. And the technology that we praised turns on us. And within the course of most of these movies, we end up working for or running from AI as we then try and find new technology to defeat the last round of technology that we created so that humanity can continue to survive. And I think there was a prophetic edge to many of these movies because many of them were filmed before 2007, which was the official start of the digital age, and none of them could have truly known what was coming. In 2007, we, we got the iPhone, uh, Facebook for everyone, Twitter, the App Store and the cloud, all in a very short period of time, and our entire world, the human experience in the Western world, fundamentally shifted in the course of a few months and years. By 2010, the iPhone became widely available across the population. Uh, and then here's a few more stats. By 2015, two out of every three teenagers in America had an iPhone. That doesn't count all the other smartphones. Two out of three had an iPhone. Fast forward a few more years to today, something like 97% of young men and 98% of young women are on social media, and technology now dominates the bulk of our time and attention. Americans, these are so... <laughs> So um, sad, but Americans spend an average of three to eight hours a day watching TV, depending on which study you go with, eight hours a day of streaming content on Netflix and Disney Plus, and 2.5 hours a day on social media. Every day. Even as I'm reading that out loud, I'm thinking, oh, maybe this is why we have a labor shortage. Like, we don't have time to work. We have all this other stuff we have to do. Uh, but in a weird echo of the Matrix or Terminator, the technology that we made to serve us, in some sense, has turned on us. 
the roles have reversed. The iPhone in your pocket is not serving you, rather you are serving it. And to make matters worse, the technology that we invented is slowly killing us, though not in dramatic Hollywood fashion. Here are a few of the stats. Uh, first off, you are serving it. The average iPhone user touches their phone two to 3,000 times a day over the course of 76 sessions on their phone. Uh, that's an average among all groups, by the way. So typically, the younger you are, the higher the numbers get. Number two, most Americans are full-on addicted to their phones and social media via dopamine hits. There's an entire science behind this. Uh, as a test, try to go 24 hours without your phone and see what happens. Next, app developers design their product to capture your time and attention, and they sell that time and attention to others, which is why free apps and search engines are worth billions of dollars. Okay, take a deep breath and think about that for a moment. It's free, and it's worth billions of dollars. How? How could that be true? Well, it's because they're designed to capture your time and attention, to package that up, and to sell that on to people who will pay for that. They profit off you, not the other way around. And next, uh, your time and attention are the product sold to people who want you to think, act, vote, and consume a certain way. And the scary thing is, it works. That's why there's billions of dollars in this industry. Because they've proven if I can capture your attention and, and sell it to someone, they can effectively change the way you think. They can effectively change your character, your appetites, your opinions, the way you want to vote, whatever it is. Instead of Mary, sitting at the feet of Jesus, being conformed into his image, we now have hundreds of millions of people sitting at the feet of the digital matrix, being formed, conformed in, into their image as our time and attention is sold to the highest bidder. And it gets worse. Just here to cheer you up this morning. In many ways, I would argue that the technology that we've created is slowly killing us. Uh, now, I'll pause before I walk through these. I actually think that the greatest tragedy is that we are shaped by the patterns of this world into shallow postmodern consumers who lack genuine connection to God. Free-floating atoms uh, who... Uh, think what the culture tells us to think, who have had our desires, our appetites, our opinion, even our capacity to think, shaped by the digital world that we are addicted to. I would argue that's the greatest harm that's being caused to the most people. 
But there's other forms of harm that it's causing as well. Here are just a few. Uh, there's a direct correlation between social media use and anxiety and depression. This is particularly true after you cross one hour of use per day and uh, becomes even more serious after you cross three hours of use per day. Uh, once you cross one, there's a stronger and stronger correlation between anxiety, depression, and your time on social media. After you break three, uh, your risk of suicide or at least suicidal ideation begins to increase dramatically. Remember, as an average, we're at 2.5. And most young people are well beyond that. Some are at five or six hours a day. So think about the effect that that's having. Um, here's one snapshot of that. Immediately after giving iPhones to teens, teen happiness plummeted. We have 60 or 70 years of data that was slowly increasing, peaked in the 90s and early 2000s. The second iPhones came on the scene, all the trends reversed. Decades of gains were lost overnight. Teen happiness plummeted, uh, teen depression and anxiety doubled, and teen suicide doubled within a very short amount of time. Among girls uh, age 11 to 14, suicide tripled. Meaning that the worst thing you can do for your teenage son or daughter is give them an iPhone, put them on social media, and hope for the best. And sadly, adults don't fare much better than teens when it comes to anxiety, depression, and mental health. Another study found that the more time you spend on social media, the more materialistic you are in your thinking, meaning that if I had you take a survey on the role of um, money and possessions in your life as a follower of Jesus, and you were to take that survey on the way out the door today, and then throughout the afternoon, if I were to force you to spend multiple hours online and on social media in particular, I could give you that same survey tonight before you went to bed, and your thinking would have shifted over the course of a few hours of being online. And finally, when it comes to the role of technology in our happiness or misery, one study found that every activity involving a screen led to lower happiness and satisfaction, and that every non-screen activity tracked in the study led to greater happiness and satisfaction, get this, including homework. Okay, so just track with me for a second here. If I said, hey, tonight you have a choice, you can spend two hours doing homework or two hours on Instagram. What do you, what do you want? What do you choose? Well, what we want is Instagram. But after two hours of doing that activity, you could check back in with that person. They will actually be worse off than if they'd been doing homework out of a paper printed book. Interesting. And we're barely scratching the surface here, but I want you to get a sense of the actual cost that technology is having on the human experience and discipleship to Jesus. This is not a tertiary issue. Uh, technology is not a fun extra that I tack on to my full and vibrant life. 
Rather, our addiction to technology can become this this all-consuming thing that slowly but surely sucks the life out of us as we go. To quote Morpheus from The Matrix, which I've always wanted to do in a sermon, (laughs) we marveled at our own magnificence as we gave birth to AI, a singular consciousness that spawned an entire race of machines. In a sad, shallow way, we are living out the technological fears that we had all along. We have created something more powerful than we are, more addictive than our willpower, that has turned on us and is now slowly killing us over time. Supercomputers with advanced algorithms capture our hours and our days and shape us to become more miserable, lonely, depressed, anxious, materialistic, cynical, shallow, and suicidal than we were at the start. We now willingly plug into a digital matrix that shapes our thoughts, desires, addictions, preferences, and interior lives with greater effectiveness than any technology that has ever been invented in all of human history. Shovels didn't do that. The technology of past millennia did not do that. This is something new. This is something different. And I'm not just up here to rage against the machine. I'm up here because uh, talking about this because I believe this is an important issue within the life of discipleship. The entirety of our spiritual lives is at stake. Your time, your attention, your values, your character, your awareness of God, the shape and state of your soul, I would argue, will rise and fall based on your relationship to technology. And if we are to form resilient disciples in the years that lie ahead, we have to get this right. If you want to follow Jesus effectively in our time, place, and culture, then at some point you have to face the digital age head on, face to face, and be honest about it. There is no alternative. So what do we do? Where do we go from here? Uh, Well, I'm very pleased to announce this morning that we're going to be starting a new Amish community here in Spokane. Uh, You can sign up in the back on your way out and just go ahead and drop your iPhone in the blender next to the sign-up sheet. Your plain clothes will ship in five to ten business days. No, uh, I'm not there yet. Yet. Instead, I want to propose something really simple and really profound. If you are going to follow Jesus in the midst of our digital age, uh, if you are going to flourish in the midst of stunning spiritual and mental crisis, 
you have to limit yourself. The digital world will not limit itself. It is designed expertly to consume, to invade, to spread out into your life. It is designed to capture more and more of your time and attention. Meaning that if you do not think about this issue, if you just let things take their course and, and don't come at it with any sort of critical eye, if you do not draw a line in the sand, uh, then spiritually speaking, you will not survive. Your time, attention, awareness, allegiance will not lie with Jesus, but will be captured and sold on to others for profit. Our bodies, our minds, our souls will no longer be offered as living sacrifices, in the language of Romans 12, but, living, but instead we will be living sacrifices to the digital power brokers of our day. Hey, here's my life. My time, my attention, my money, the way that I think, it's yours for your profit. And if we aren't careful, we can easily let that take its course for years until we wake up one day uh, to recognize that we are no longer being transformed by the renewing of our minds, but rather conformed to the patterns of this world, one hour, one day at a time, as we are shaped by the most powerful and addictive devices ever created. So a few practical things as we close um, on ways we can limit ourselves in the digital age for the sake of discipleship. Here's a few ideas. Uh, number one, take a digital Sabbath. I suggest taking a real Sabbath as well. That's a whole other teaching for another time. But regardless of whether or not you take a literal Sabbath, I would encourage you to take a digital Sabbath. That's 24 hours or one day out of every week where you are technology free. That means your laptop is put away, your TV is turned off, unplug it if you need to, your iPhone is turned off and in a drawer and, and just pay attention, just see what happens to you as you try to live 24 hours out of every week without that influence. It's the best way to find out just how addicted you really are. Uh, number two, limit social media. I personally decided to uh, quit social media cold turkey back in 2016. And the first few weeks were honestly pretty hard. And ever since then, it has been a joy. I have no desire to go back. Uh, I do not regret my decision at all. My life has only been richer because of it. Uh, in fact, studies show that the average person who quits social media is 40% happier within the first week of quitting. 40%. But if you can't quit or it's part of your work or whatever it is, then my suggestion is that you limit yourself. Uh, my baseline starting suggestion for a limit is one hour of social media a day, and there's a whole science behind that, which I mentioned earlier. 
in terms of its impact on uh, anxiety and depression and suicidal ideation, studies show that if you can stick at or below one hour a day, you can actually avoid a lot of those ill effects that set in at higher hours. Uh, if you continue, even at one hour a day, the studies which would suggest that you're still gonna wrestle with things like materialism, comparison, self-worth, all of that. So be aware that those are things that you may have to fight within your own heart. Um, but that's your choice, not mine. Um, some people quit. Some people delete social media apps from their phones and only access them on the computer as a means of limiting themselves. Another great option is that you can set limits on your phone. Uh, and on an iPhone, it's really easy. You can just say, hey, after 45 minutes of total time today, just kick me off, or an hour, or an hour and a half, or whatever it is. You decide in your own mind, this is what I think is reasonable for me. This is what I would like to spend on social media. You can plug that into your phone and you will be shocked how quickly you hit that limit. Oh, two hours a day, that's so much time, I'll never hit that. And it's like 9.30 in the morning and your phone's like, you've reached your limit. And you're like, what? How could this? Yeah. You will be surprised, but set a limit and it will help you grow in your awareness uh, of how much time you're actually spending. Whatever it is, however you limit yourself, limit yourself, do something to keep that in check. Here's a few more uh, that I'll rattle off as we close. You can turn off notifications, even turning off push notifications and silence your phone, uh, meaning no sound or no vibration at a bare minimum, which makes it less addictive. Uh, you can turn your phone to grayscale instead of color. That's black and white. Uh, that also has been proven to make your phone less addictive over time. I would suggest that you start and end your day with God, as in first thing when you get up in the morning uh, and the last thing before you close your eyes at night. And there are so many other things we could list here. You can get a dumb phone. You can cancel your cable TV. You can destroy your TV. Does anyone remember those bumper stickers from the 90s? I think they just said, kill your TV. Yeah. Uh, I actually want one that just says, kill your iPhone, but nobody would do it anyways. Uh, you can limit your streaming, and uh, on it goes. I actually have created, with the help of a few of the leaders in the church, we've created a list of 30 or 40 uh, suggestions and creative ideas that you can use to navigate the digital age as a disciple of Jesus. So you can feel, and there's a handout in the back, so as you leave today, feel free to grab one of those. Uh, I would also suggest talking to people about this. Talk to your spouse if you're married. Talk to your friends or your roommate. Talk to your missional community if you're in one. And just share, hey, here's where I'm at. Here's what I want to try. Here's some creative limits that I think would be useful for me. Involve real human beings and outside accountability uh, in what you're doing. But whatever you choose to do, However you choose to do it, you have to limit yourself if you want to thrive as a disciple of Jesus in our day and age. And I know what some of you are thinking. This is the vision series. Tell us where we're going. And if you've been around the church for a couple years, you'll notice that this vision series was not like any vision series that we've done in the past. 
we have not used this vision series to tell you where we're going. It would be more accurate to say we've used the vision series to tell you where we're not going. We've used this time to tell you who we will not become. And to highlight cultural forces that need to be called out and resisted. In fact, I could sum up three of the last four weeks of the vision series with these uh, convictions. Number one, uh, we will not bow to cultural forces telling us to abandon or reinterpret scripture, but will stand faithfully on the Bible as God's word. Number two, we will not allow secularism to dissolve the strong bonds that God intended among his people. Instead, we choose to build relationally as the family of God. And I would sum up today by saying, we will not succumb to digital addiction and be deformed into their image for their profit, rather we will follow Jesus, giving him our time and attention so that we can be transformed into his image. And I would argue that if we can stand on these convictions as an expression of the church, half the battle has already been won, more than half. If we look at the cultural trends in America, millions of people walking away from their, from their faith and walking away from church, what does it mean to form resilient disciples? We have to get these basic things right. We have to understand the basic cultural forces that are pushing and pulling on us and figure out how to resist them. If we can, if we can resist and throw off these forces, if you can approach scripture and community and discipleship free of these things, then I'm, you will be working from a place of strength instead of a place of weakness. A, a place of passion instead of apathy. We, we can allow ourselves at last to be shaped by the biblical worldview, to engage in genuine community as the family of God, to be present to the spirit of God and to be shaped into the image of Jesus. And I can preach this stuff uh, week in and week out, but if cynicism has already taken root in your heart and individualism has already weakened any sense of strong bond that you would consider forming with another human being, and digital addiction has the best of your time and attention, and unseen forces that you don't understand are actually shaping your desires and your thinking and your character and your definition of freedom, then what happens in this place, we'll, we'll, it's gonna fall on deaf ears. We, we'll be fighting an uphill battle. There's a sense in which it's too late. If you've already given your primary allegiance to other cultural forces. In some sense, it, it is a disheartening time to be a pastor in America right now because typically the younger people are, the more digitally addicted they are and the harder they are to reach and disciple. 
I, I've been lamenting the, the exodus of college students that's happened over the last few years. But I've noticed I'm hearing the same lament across our city and across our nation. What happened to the young people? Why are they so numb to the things of God? Too often there is a glaze in their eyes. And you can watch over the years this slow fade toward apathetic, hollow emptiness. You can watch people in the language of Jesus losing their saltiness over time. And we don't do it on purpose. We just do what's natural. We do what's easy. We uh, grab what's in front of us. We fall victim to the technology of our day. But all of a sudden, we can wake up two or three or five or ten years later only to recognize that we aren't passionate about Jesus and we aren't in any form of biblical community and we don't really read the Bible and we aren't practicing the way of Jesus with our hours and our day. All of a sudden, we're more post-Christian than we are Christian. And we look back over the last five years and say, what happened? What was that? What happened to me? How did I get from one to the other? I, I wasn't binge drinking and using cocaine. How has my life gone so far off track? I was, I was binge watching Netflix and dinking around on Instagram. Like, really? That, that's what's taken me down that's what's caused me to lose my saltiness? And yet, here we are. John Ortberg says it this way. He says, for many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. Or in the words of Paul, you were running a good race. Who cut in on you? Who pulled you off course? Who stole your time and attention? Who infected your thinking and distracted you into spiritual oblivion? Uh, I don't know. It just kind of happens. Brothers and sisters, I think we have been way too naive about the dark side of the technology in our pockets. And if we cannot conquer this addiction, then we will be slaves to Rome instead of passionate followers of Jesus. You have one life. And, and, and the urge of Scripture is don't waste it. Don't be a cog in that machine. Do not throw away your life for dopamine and distraction.
You were meant for so much more. The call of God on our lives. What will open up and become available to us if we can free ourselves from that addiction. But first, we have to wake up. We have to want it. Let's pray. Jesus, we come to you now, uh, some of us as um, children of the digital age, having, um, not even having a chance to know what life is like uh, without Wi-Fi and cell phones in my pocket and 24-hour news and hours a day on social media and whatever else. Lord, we don't even know who we might have been if things had gone a different course in history. And so we come to you, Lord. I think many of us, like Martha, but, but desiring to be like Mary. And I, I think of those words that you spoke to Martha. Perhaps there are generations of Marthas Represented, And you said, Martha, Martha, why, why are you so troubled and anxious and distracted? You have your mind on so many things, but only one thing is necessary. You, you see Mary here? She's chosen the one thing. She's made the better choice. Lord, I pray that that would be true of us. I think that that's the simplest way to speak about where we're headed this year. We, we want to be a culture of Martha's on an exodus with you out into the desert and into a new way of life. And Lord, some of us feel truly enslaved. We feel trapped. I was reading through interviews of current teenagers and they were saying, I hate this. It's so shallow, it's so empty, it's killing me and I cannot stop. So we just say, Lord, have mercy on us. Would you come now? Would you bring your creative freedom into our lives? Would you take us and in, in ones and twos and family units and missional communities as, as an entire church, would we be on this journey, on this exodus from Martha to Mary? There they are, sitting, sitting right next to each other from the same family in the same house. 
the next cubicle over next to you on the city bus, the, the students next to you and the seats, whatever it is, they're right next to each other. And yet there is a world of difference between one heart posture and the other. God, may we be known as, as Mary's in a generation of Martha's. Would you come and lead us on an exodus from the things that enslave us. Say, come Holy Spirit, speak to us now. In Jesus' name. Amen.